Welcome to Hence the Future Podcast. I'm Justin Clark. And I'm Adam Cronin. And this week, we're discussing the future of startups. So let's just start off with the most basic question. Why is it crucial now more than ever to have a startup mentality? Yeah, so a startup mentality is just being in permanent beta. So always trying to improve yourself and gain new knowledge, gain new skills, gain new experiences. And then based on those experiences, always repositioning yourself to the market. So kind of just viewing yourself as being a startup is really key. And the reason why it's so important now and in the future, as opposed to the past is because in the past, there was this corporate escalator as it's called, where you graduate from college, you you know go to Goldman Sachs or your local Dairy Queen or whatever it is, you start at the entry level position. And so long as you work hard, you show up on time and you're an overall good employee, you can be there for 40 years and you know, you'll have all, you know, whatever your slice of the American dream, you'll be, you'll be a okay, basically. But yeah. now that's completely changed. So there's a real need to constantly be reinventing yourselves because the paradigm has shifted many times just in our life and it's accelerating. So yeah. adaptability so like the is the rule. The businesses themselves are shifting, which is why you don't stay with the same company for so long. Some companies are just going to go out of business because they can't handle all the change that's happening. Exactly. And that's and that's why there's so few companies that have been around for 100 plus years. I mean, the only one that's been around for more than 100 years is GE, and they're having some serious problems right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> if you think of Tesla, I mean, that's that's kind of the company that's disrupting the, the automotive space. But there's there's a lot of companies that can handle change better than others, too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you just... It, it, I, I like that idea of being in constant beta, though, and reinventing yourself and making sure that you aren't just this static thing that can't adapt to the environment. Because it kind of defeats the whole purpose of being a human and having all of this neuroplasticity and being able to adapt to your environment. So, yeah, I really yeah. like that uh, concept. I mean, think of like, for instance, Canon or, or some any of these traditional photography companies where they started off just in like the film was their world, the whole idea of taking pictures, developing the film, you know, they made a lot of money off of just that part of the process. And they were super reluctant to make the transition to digital cameras. And now they're going to be left in the dust again with the transition to smartphone cameras, because it's just so much more convenient to have your phone for taking pictures as opposed to, you know, having to carry around an extra camera. So I think the key also in having the startup mentality is to focus always on the why and just like what is the real value you're providing. So for a camera company, it's all about capturing moments in whatever the easiest, highest quality way possible. So if you keep that mentality and you stay on the pulse of the changes, then you can adapt. But if you just focus on what you've been doing for years and what you've become comfortable doing, then there's no question you're going to be left in the dust. Yeah, and that kind of reminds me of this whole concept of uh, focusing on kind of the broad picture and your mission rather than the exact implementation of how you're going to reach that, which is, you know, one of the reasons that new startup founders and entrepreneurs are told not to write a business plan because mm -hmm. then you feel so... Yeah 
you feel so tied to this very rigid type of thinking, whereas something like we've talked about a couple times is the business model canvas, where you just kind of have a one mm-hmm. sheet of, you have one sheet of paper and you can just determine all of your your key value propositions, your key relationships, your key revenue streams, all of these things that help you kind of see the big picture, but it gives you the flexibility to handle anything, any sort of environment, anything that the market throws at you. Yeah. Um, Well, yeah, I mean, the problem with goals and goal setting in the form of a business plan or any other form of goal setting is that it's super narrow and it doesn't Mm -hmm. leave room for error. Like, for instance, Mm -hmm. if you have a goal to lose 20 pounds by the time summer comes, then by the time summer comes around, if you lost 19 pounds, then that's going to be a failure. And it's, mm-hmm. so it's like super easy to fail. Whereas if instead you have a system in place where it's like, you know, anytime a system where I'm just not going to have any sweets except for on the weekend at the end of the day. And that's mm-hmm. your system. And anytime you encounter a craving during the week, you say, you know what, I'm instead going to have something healthy, like some nuts or fruits or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And if you have a system like that, then you're constantly getting um, value from having small successes, little wins. And just yeah. overall, whether you're a person, a company, a brand, if you can get out of the goal setting mindset and get into the systematic mindset, that's mm-hmm. going to be a much better plan for success. Yeah. And the, the cool thing about that, too, is you always have this constant feedback. Whereas mm. you're, you know, if you set the goal, like you said, of losing 20 pounds by summer, the only feedback you get is at the end, if you lose your 20 pounds yeah. by summer. Yeah, but and, then, you're and doing then you can go back to your old ways, like right after. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, there, there's nothing in place that'll keep this thing going. And that, that translates to entrepreneurship well, because if you have these systems in place and this discipline, I think that's one of the other big things with with startups is having discipline to just grind it out. And we can talk more about that. Mm -hmm. Um, But having, having a system in place and the feedback in place is something that is becoming more and more prevalent. So like with advertising, you know, it used to be, you just throw a whole bunch of money at a huge campaign and see what happens afterwards. I mean, you kind Mm -hmm. of have these ideas of what might happen. But and and you might have something to say about this too. But now that nowadays you can get instant feedback about the response to certain ads online or how people are reacting to your social media content immediately. So you always have this constant feedback, and we can leverage that to start businesses in a better way than yeah. than previously. Yeah. Well, I think it would be useful to use some of the different frameworks. In, in thinking about this, like for instance, the new the new rule, I think what you were getting at is the build, measure, learn is the new mm-hmm. rule for growing any sort of business, growing your own brand, whatever it mm-hmm. may be. And so this is this comes from the lean startup, Eric Rees, where right. he basically says that no matter what you're doing, you should always have this feedback loop where you're building something. So you build a minimum viable product and Mm -hmm. then you measure the results and then you learn and optimize based on those results so like for instance let's say you have a an idea for an app and you say oh i know that if someone created this app it would be number one in the app store people would love it i know because i've been looking for an app like this if you have that idea most people 
will spend tens of thousands of dollars hiring a developer. The developers will build something and then they'll realize, oh shit, no one wants this. Or it's not even close to being ROI positive now that we're actually testing it out in the market. And mm -hmm. so if instead, rather than spending all that time and money up front building this thing that you haven't tested, if you can create an MVP, like if you can go into Envision, like literally design exactly what you want the app to look like, you know, get a designer or design it yourself using a tool like Sketch, make every single screen, make the exact flow that you want for all the screens, put it into Envision, and then you can drive traffic to that Envision test site, see how people are using it, make changes based on those learnings. And then by the time you have an optimized flow for the app, you can give it to a developer confidently knowing that, okay, as long as the developer builds it exactly how it looks right now, it's going to convert, it's going to do well. And then you're not yeah. going to have to pay for the developer to make drastic changes after the fact. Right. Yeah. I mean, that framework is, is so useful even in, in other sorts of, uh, in other contexts, I guess. So one of, one of the things I, I think about a lot is how Elon Musk started Tesla. Like if you think of mm -hmm. the tall order of making, changing the public opinion in electric cars, there's absolutely no way if he started 10 years ago and just started making the best electric cars, no one would have cared because no one, everyone had this thing in their mind that electric cars are kind of dumb and that mm -hmm. electric cars don't work that well. So what he did is he had this iterative approach. It was kind of stepping stones to get to this final stage where there's feedback along the way, kind of like we're talking about. So instead mm -hmm. of just jumping the gun all the way to the end, what he did was he introduced the Tesla Roadster, right? And that was a very narrow product and he tested it and he iterated on it, got some feedback and started developing more technology in the background, um, even though the product was really narrow. Yeah, well, this this fits perfectly into Peter Thiel's model of the zero to one. So yeah, it's basically true, yeah. like the whole idea of rather than trying to get 1% of a billion dollar market, try to get 100% of a million dollar market. So Elon Musk didn't immediately go out and try to take over the world with all electric cars. He instead said, okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to create the best product in the narrow category of high-end electric sports cars mm -hmm. that only a small portion of the population can afford. But he was able to create a product that was the king in that category. And from there, he then grew to be slightly bigger, slightly bigger and expand. It's the same idea as how Jeff Bezos didn't just go ahead trying to take on everything. He started with online book sales. And once he dominated that market of online book sales, which was pretty small at the time that he started it, then he could go into online CD sales and DVD sales and then expand from there to now he owns basically almost everything in retail. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Zero to One is a really good book. And, and it's kind of the same concept, though. It's it's about making something small and expanding mm -hmm. and and or, you know, like we were talking about earlier doing making an mvp getting feedback and iterating like all of this is based on the same fundamental concept but i particularly find the whole um grand disruption idea interesting because 
that's how the world is going to change. And that's how we're going to see all of the best case scenarios we've talked mm-hmm. about is people that can properly disrupt. Because, you know, if, if you're trying to, let's say you're a Democrat trying to disrupt the 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 green you know the green policies around the country you're not going to make that change by just jumping the gun and trying to make all of these sweeping changes right you're you're going to make that change by iteratively you know improving upon a single idea and then expanding that so like all of these ideas go beyond even entrepreneurship and startups too yeah, but it, it is very true what you what you just said about how it's important <clears throat> that you have a vision of the future that's different than the mainstream vision of the future. And Peter Thiel actually talks about this too, where he says, you should ask yourself, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? And this is known as the contrarian truth. And any good startup idea begins with a contrarian truth. Because if it was mainstream, then it wouldn't be an opportunity, right? Right. So let's say you don't have an idea for a contrarian truth. You know you want to be a startup founder, an entrepreneur, but you don't feel like you have any strong conviction one way or the other. One good way to solve that is to simply have a new bag of experiences. So like Steve Jobs, you know, the famous quote says, you can't have the same bag of experiences as everyone else and expect to create something world changing. So, you know, just by doing things that are different, you know, joining a club, traveling around the world, volunteering on the other side of, you know, like in a completely different environment, whatever that may be, having those disparate skills will then give you a slightly different perspective from most people. And then those contrarian truths will just come to you. And then you can pursue and test those contrarian truths in the systematic way like we've talked about where it's you're building an MVP, you're testing and measuring the MVP, and then you're optimizing based on that. Yeah, and that's what we talked about a lot in the last episode too is being more of a generalist, having all of these experiences that help you see the world differently. Mm -hmm. And all of these, you know, if you bring all of these concepts together from all, you know, any field you could think about, whether it's like biology, computer science, marketing, like all of these things put together, you can definitely come up with something that is disruptive in the world of um, startups and the market. And you can you can do something that makes lasting change or you can just do something that you enjoy doing. Right. It doesn't you don't necessarily need to disrupt the entire world. If you're starting a company, you could just do something that you like doing. Yeah, well, the long tail makes that accessible. So with the internet, you can reach, you know, the most niche groups of people possible. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it, I think like as far as why it's important to be a generalist now, as opposed to in the past, is the same reason why there's it's never been easier to start a startup. And that is that you can now outsource everything other than your core competency. And mm-hmm. I think that's going to be one big trend that we see going into the future where on the last episode, for people who didn't listen to it, that, that what we talked about the one person million dollar businesses where, mm-hmm. you know, one person can, you know, have millions of dollars in revenue without having to do much work at all. And I think we're going to see that trend increase in the future. Because think about it, if you, for instance, let's say you create some sort of handmade 
artistic products. You can basically have Amazon do everything outside of you producing them and supplying it to Amazon. The whole logistics mm-hmm. chain can be handled now without you. Now, it definitely helps if you can drive traffic there and, and create some, you know, right. a unique brand identity or com- competitive advantage, you know, the why behind what you're doing it. All of that is very important. But just logistically speaking, it's never been easier to start a startup because you can just focus on what the one thing that you're better than everyone else at and then outsource yeah. the rest. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is even if you don't have the money to outsource everything, right? Like some some people just want to bootstrap everything completely and they don't necessarily have the funds to outsource everything. A lot of things are just getting cheaper in general. Mm-hmm. So, so another reason why it's easier to start a business or anything, for example, in the computing space, if you wanted to start a website or if you wanted to start some sort of app or some sort of, let's say, tech service, you can you don't need to go buy a whole bunch of hardware and infrastructure to set this up. You can just use something like Amazon Web Services mm-hmm. and the Google Cloud, and you can have everything just running in a cloud on the world's best hardware, but you didn't have to purchase it. You're just paying a little bit every hour or so, or yeah. you could pay by the day or by the week or whatever the deal is. You can use these these cloud platforms or any sort of other supporting business services to help you scale your business yeah. and well, this, bootstrap your business. Well, this might be a good time to talk about some of our favorite tools with getting started and starting any sort of... Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, just in general, you're talking about the cloud, first of all. Mm-hmm. I'll say that I think we both like using the whole Google universe of... Oh, yeah whether it's Google Drive, Google Sheets, Google Docs, whatever yep. it is, that world is very easy to automate and it's very easy to integrate via APIs with whatever other tools you're using. Also, yeah. it's free up to a certain level yeah. of storage. So yeah. anyone can get start. Anyone can start their business on Google for very little money. I mean, you can use Gchat. As far as messaging, I prefer Slack to Gchat or to right. email or anything, but that's not necessi- that's not a necessity for sure. Yeah. Um, my favorite marketing tool for actually building an audience is definitely MailChimp because it's just so easy, the UI is so good, and they're always expanding. So it used to just be emails that you could send with MailChimp, but now you can create landing pages, you can have your whole database in there. So when I'm thinking about if someone comes to me and they're thinking of starting a startup and they haven't done any steps, the first step I'll typically tell them to do is to sign up for a free MailChimp account, create a landing page where people can sign up, and then send them an email once a week so you're engaging with your list. So that's like the best way to you know set up and start building your audience. And then yeah. you know for MVPs like we were talking about, how do you create the initial version? of your product, Envision is a phenomenal app for that. You can literally basically see what an app will look like before coding a single line of code. That's really Um, cool. Sketch is my favorite tool for designing the screens that will go into the Envision flow. And then as far as how do you drive people to that flow, Facebook ads, which is not just Facebook, it's also Instagram, it's also pretty much any website or app you can think Mm -hmm. of that's the easiest way to then 
drive traffic. Um, and then if you're on a website, Oribi, O-R-I-B-I dot I-O, that is the best tool that I've come across for tracking conversion rates on your website. And if you okay. put these tools together, I don't care what your business is, you can test things out in the build, measure, learn system yeah. and achieve success so long as you just stay true to those tenants. Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit more a little bit more about the Google universe because yeah, yeah. I just I think they make such good products and a lot of it is free like you were saying. So let's let's talk about Drive for a second. So anything like Word um, Excel, PowerPoint, all of those things, like you don't need any of it. You can just do it all in Google Drive. But one of the things that a lot of people don't know about is this scripting language that um, that's a programming language that Google has in the background. So you can write little scripts to automate components of your Google Drive. Mm -hmm. So you can interact with Google Calendar, with Gmail, with um, maps like everything can be connected through this one uh, language called Google App Script so you can even uh, you can automate all of these different processes in your business that would normally take let's say a few hours out of your day you can just write a little script or have somebody write a little script yeah um, so for, in, for say, instance like on Upwork just, yeah right? oh, I was gonna say that too but but for instance I think a good example would be what we're doing with Sonic Cloud with the mm -hmm. ads reporting. So Justin and I both work at a company called Sonic Cloud and Justin has automated the reporting process, which used to be a huge headache for me as head of growth to put this report together each week. And basically he's able to pull data from the Facebook ads, pull data from our back end of seeing who actually becomes a subscriber and use Google Drive so that it automatically creates a Google presentation each week and then sends out that presentation to the various team members. And I can't tell you how much better the process is now that we have this automated. And to Justin's point that he raised just a minute ago, if you don't have coding capabilities, that's not a problem. You can hire someone on Upwork. These, mm -hmm. you know, for not that much money, way less than you would think, you can get someone to, you know, automate your core processes so long as you know what the end goal is and you know what needs to be measured. So that's another thing that people really right. need to care, need to think about is what are the key performance indicators for your business that right. will help guide you to success? Yeah, and sometimes the, the key performance indicator isn't necessarily like profit or revenue. Right. Sometimes Sometimes it's something that's it seems a little more peripheral, but it's core to your business. So mm -hmm. whether, you know, um, you know, I'm not thinking. Like for instance, like, it, like let's say you're, you know, you're writing a book and you're trying to build an audience for your book. Obviously, that like a very simple key performance indicator would just simply be how many people are on your email list, you know? Yeah. Like that yeah. would be a great, and then you, maybe you think, okay, once I get to a certain amount, then I'll feel comfortable doing my, you know, starting my pre-launch and then doing the actual launch. Um, mm -hmm. If you have something like, let's say you have a, a subscription-based app company, then, you know, a good metric is how many, subscription, how many subscribers do you have and what's the cost per subscriber? And yeah. another trend that I'll, I'll say that I've noticed becoming more and more important now 
which Eric Rees talked about in his follow-up to the Lean Startup called The Startup Way, is the importance of unit economics. So in the past, it used to all just be like, oh, what's our top line revenue? Like how much, it was all very like pie in the sky numbers, but now people are much more focused on the repeatable financial model. So what's the cost to get one new subscriber and how much value does that one new subscriber give you? So if it costs okay. 50 bucks to get a new subscriber, but the subscriber gives you 100 bucks in lifetime value, then obviously mm -hmm. you should just acquire as many subscribers as possible for that cost. But yeah. I think for anyone, like, you know, for, for us, for Hence the Future podcast, thinking about what does it take to get one new Hence the Future subscriber and how engaged is that typical subscriber? Like, no matter what your business is, thinking about it in the, the unit economics, like the one-off, is a great way to just ground yourself in reality. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I really like that that idea. Um, and one of one of the other concepts too that's related to what we've been talking about is the idea that you don't you don't need to be in a specific location to start a business. Like with all of these tools, especially the cloud tools, where all you need is an internet connection. Why don't you let's say let's say you're not you know this this doesn't really count for VC backed startups because it's important to be in the VC hubs like San Francisco or New York or Boston or you know any mm -hmm. any of the big cities, but let's say you're not one of those people and you just want to start a business to you know you want to bootstrap a business or something you can be anywhere you can go to oh, yeah. like Estonia you can go to the states that have no state income tax. So, so it's a yeah. little bit easier on you financially to start a business. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. for instance, like one example, um, my cousin who just got married, he was previously working as a stockbroker. And obviously that's an area that's been heavily automated recently. I mean, now you can go mm -hmm. on Robinhood and do commission free trading. Yeah. So when he realized that that career path had no future, he started a company called Juniors for Seniors, where it's basically young, young people helping to drive around older people who might not have adult children of their own to take care of them, to take them to a doctor's appointment, to pick hmm. them up, just to be with them if they're feeling lonely, like whatever, yeah. whatever is needed. And it's such a brilliant idea for a business because it's really in line with, first of all, what what actual value there is in being human like it really mm -hmm. is focused on the human to human connection and second of all it really takes advantage of the trends so the mm -hmm. fact that we have this aging population um, and we also have a lot of a lot more loneliness and depression uh, partially as a result of all of this you know digital media as opposed to real face-to-face -face yeah. meaningful human interactions um, so that's like an example of a very a great idea for a startup that's super low tech like you know most yeah. se most seniors want to just call you on the phone anyways so it's not like you need some uh -huh. like fancy like website or anything um, so I think and it may be a good a good topic to discuss after this are what are some other good trends for people who are thinking about starting a startup that that might help them decide which type of startup is most uh, advantageous for them to build yeah. Um, well, so one quick thing before we get in, into those, um, to kind of touch on your point and what I was saying about the remote work, it, 
we do need human connections. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's an awesome business that, that your cousin started because people do need these connections. And one of the more negative trends with an increasingly digital economy and people working remotely is things are just a little lonelier. But yeah. to combat that, one of the trends that I see is the co-working spaces like WeWork and like mm-hmm. Neuhaus. Um, you can still be in a place where there is maybe a little bit of open collaboration and events and all of these things going on, but you're still you're still working, let's say, as a sole proprietor, but you don't have to be alone, mm-hmm. right? I just yeah. I think that's a really that's another really good type of business and and something that people should keep in mind as they're starting a company because sometimes it can be lonely. Oh yeah. Um, and co-working just... spaces and co-living spaces are, it's like you can't go wrong in those areas cause that's, there's mm-hmm. a real need for that. Mm-hmm. I think another, another big trend that I've seen is the experiences as being more valuable than things. Okay. So, you know, yeah. I've heard my, my mom and grandma talk about how, no one wants their fine china anymore. Like the younger generations really don't care about all of these quote unquote nice things that they yeah. worked hard to get. And instead, young people care way more about experiences. And it's not just about yeah. traveling to Bali and eating avocado toast. You know, it's it's also things like just um, you know going on a hike with your friends or like the whole the business of dry bar for instance where who would have thought that just doing like a blow dry and styling your hair would be a big business but it's a really pleasant experience for someone who already has to get ready for some big event and rather than like you know the stressful time like getting ready right before it not liking how it looks you can just go and have this you know spa experience same thing with the rise of all these workout classes like yeah you can just be on a treadmill alone but it's not as good of an experience as if you're with people in a yoga class, like meditating and feeling the energy of everyone around you. And like I had an idea yesterday when I was walking my dogs for a business, which uh-huh. was I was thinking like kind of a like dry bar. I was thinking because I had to get my dogs groomed because they've uh-huh. gotten really ratty. But I thought <laughs> like it's such a hassle for people to get their dogs groomed and like get a haircut. What if you made it a positive experience where you can go with your dog for like a spa day <laughs> and your dog is getting like shampooed and cut while you're getting shampooed and cut. And so it can kind of be like <laughs> a nice day out for you and your pup. That's awesome. <laughs> and like, you know, that's obviously it's not like it's not like there's a dev, uh, devastating need for that type of of startup or else the yeah. planet's going to explode. But <laughs> That's an experiential business where I bet you like the 1% of the 1%, which owns a lot of the purchasing power, will love something like that. Oh, Um, yeah. So I think focusing on experiences over things and focusing on human to human connections, you can't go wrong with either of those paths. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of what we see with the whole rise of Airbnb. Um, They're like they're not just selling places to be they're selling you experiences yeah Um, yeah. like you know we we went to joshua tree and had you know we we did a we did an airbnb experience there and um so i mean there's just a lot of cool things going on so if you're trying to start a business or think of thinking of something that you can start i mean you can find a niche 
experientially. Like you can, mm. you can create some sort of business where you're making the, these people experience something totally unlike anything they've ever experienced. But, um, yeah, it could be like a, you and it's your thing. Yeah. Like a Turkish bathhouse for QAnon theorists. <laughs> like, like literally you can go so deep in, in different niches yeah. and you'll find some success. But yeah, I mean the, the whole idea of going really deep into your core audience and having a visceral impact on a small group of people and going from there is so much better than just like kind of being on the radar of a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So I think going deep is, is a good solution as well. Yeah. And I guess just a couple other other trends that I've been thinking about. So aging population, we sort of talked about that, but there's going to be a serious need for companionship, elder care, anything in that in that regard, you know, hearing, vision, um, you know, physical health, mobility, all of that. Yeah. I also and, th- oh, go ahead. I also think, um, you know, AI and machine learning, that is going to be applied to so many narrow tasks in the future. Now, obviously, you got to know your technical chops if you're going to go into that area. But I mean, the AI of X, the AI of Y, applying machine learning to different narrow tasks, whether it's marketing or whether it's uh, intelligent recommendations or or whatever it is, um, that's going to be a huge, a huge area. Yeah. And then then I guess the final thing, and then I'll I'll turn it over to you. The final trend I was thinking is just the fact that nowadays people care way more about the net benefit that your company has on the world. Like it's not enough to just be the cheapest product anymore. If your product is the cheapest, but it also employs, you know, child uh, sweatshop workers, then people Mm -hmm. aren't going to want to buy from you. If your yeah. product is great and, and is cheaper and effective, but it pollutes the environment, then people aren't going to want to buy from you. So I think now more than ever, it's also important that the mission of your company is something that people are aligned with. Because yeah. now it's like people do a lot of virtue signaling with your brands. It's like the you know it's like they say the five people that you spend the most time with averaged out yeah. are you. It's kind of like yep. the 20 brands that you are associated with also are you. So people want to be associated with good brands. Mm-hmm. So I think you can't go wrong by focusing on the why and the mission of whatever your product, service, or company is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree with all of that. And to kind of expand a little bit on what you were saying, um, there. so with all of these trends going forward, it makes sense for some people to almost be a supporting business like for Hmm. so you brought up the example of the machine learning and ai that's that's a very specific skill set and i think there are fewer people that are experts in machine learning and ai than than people actually think there are i I know there's like there's a huge rise in people you know trying to be data scientists and um and machine learning experts but there's there's not that many who are truly experts in the field so what I'm what I'm getting at is you can start a business if you are an expert and support all of these other companies. You can almost be like a consultancy firm or mm-hmm. or something that develops products or helps develop products for other companies yeah. or you develop a platform um, like some sort of analytics platform so yeah, anybody like, can use it. Like for instance, one easy area could be you could start your own QA testing company. 
And all you yeah. got to do is buy like 10 different types of phones and then just mm -hmm. be willing to relentlessly go through different apps and note any bugs that you come across. Mm -hmm. Like that's something that is v of vital importance to so many companies and yet it doesn't require that much technical chops. So mm -hmm. I think you're totally right that there are many ways you can fit into these broader trends and just being aware of the trends and especially being aware of whatever your desired niche is, is so mm -hmm. key. So for instance, like some tips I have on how to stay up to date on the latest trends. One is, you know, product hunt. Yeah. Every day I have a Google Chrome extension yeah. where anytime I open up a new tab in Chrome, it will open up the top product hunt pages for the top product hunt products for that day. So I'm always on the pulse of like what new products are coming out. Likewise, mm -hmm. I've set up Google alerts. So anytime that something related to growth marketing or hearing accessibility or a couple other areas are, are identified, they're sent to me um, every day. I'll read like the daily beast because you know, they tend to curate um, in a, in a very eff efficient way. Like, what's going on in that day. Um, do you, are there any other, any particular tips you have in that, in that area? I mean, one of the things that, that I at least do myself, um, it, it works, it seems to work for me, um, is I just like learning about a broad range of things and, mm -hmm. and understanding the fundamentals of things. So there's a lot of complexity in the information that's out there. But I think if you if you see things and you see a, you see various things from a bunch of different angles, you start to see that there's kind of just the general idea that you should understand the the foundations of something rather than you know trying mm. to be an expert of you know an yeah. expert in all of these esoteric parts of you know data science. Data science is kind of what I do. Well, this so. this kind of gets back to being a generalist, right? Like you can't well, be yeah, an effective yeah. generalist unless you know the basics of what a developer does, even if you have no intention of being a developer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that even goes to say, like as a, for you as a marketer, like you're, you're more tech savvy than, uh, I mean, not just using it, but understanding how the development process works. So you, mm -hmm. you, you like know what goes into programming something and have seen code so like i just think from from that perspective it's good to understand how all the different areas of a business works even if you're not directly working on those areas right. or if you're trying to do something totally disruptive this is and this is something that elon musk talks about a lot too like when he's starting a friggin rocket ship company without ever you know working at NASA or doing all of these crazy things. What he did is understood the fundamentals of physics. Mm -hmm. Like what, what are the basic laws of nature that I should understand and how can we work with these? Because if you, if you get bogged down with all of the industry dogma, rather than going back to first principles, like you're, right, you're just going right. to, you're going to be um, in with everybody else. Like you can't truly be disruptive um, if oh, you're yeah. working on all of these like band-aid solutions rather than going back to the core of whatever you're trying to do. Right. Well, it's because, I mean, it very much is in line with the curse of knowledge where right. when you're so involved in a particular area, then mm -hmm. you've, you have all of these underlying assumptions that you're not even aware of anymore as being assumptions. And you're so far along in this thought process that all the other people in your little circle are talking about 
that you, it's so easy to miss something that might be a first principle assumption. So if you go back to those first principles, oftentimes you'll see things in a totally new way, which is why it's really helpful if you're starting a business or thinking of starting a business to ask your friends who are smart people, but who know nothing about your area. Because just yeah. like with a child, they'll ask questions that are so simple that they're genius. Yeah. <laughs> <Like it's, laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that too. Um, and one of the one of the other interesting things is um, like it's not that hard to learn the first principles of various things. Like you mm -hmm. can you can get to understanding the basic fundamentals of whatever the field is within let's say a week of intense study, yeah. and then you can and then you can go from there. And I don't want to discount the fact of being an expert though too. Like being an expert is sometimes you need to be like yeah. with with machine learning like if you don't have like a deep understanding of some mathematical concepts and even some like computing concepts for practical purposes like it's it's going to be hard to do some things but you know from a general perspective it's good to understand the principles of a lot of different things like the yeah. whole generalist idea that we've been talking about right well i mean you know in the past, you used to be able to get by with just having one skill that was your real area of expertise. Yeah. But now you're so much better off if you have at least two skills you can combine. So let's say you're very knowledgeable about machine learning, but you also happen to be a great public speaker. You know, that opens so many new doors for you that now you can be a professor. Now maybe you can start your own YouTube channel. You can, you know, put out a publication, whatever. Or yeah. let's say you're a really good at machine learning and you also happen to be a really good designer or data visualizer. Then you mm -hmm. can start like a whole, you know, infographic, maybe a design agency that, that also takes the data and presents it in a way like a consulting agency. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of uh, ways you can combine skills. And I think it's key to highlight a few skills that no matter what area your company is in, it's beneficial to you, even in the future, even with changing technology paradigms. So mm -hmm. a couple of these areas, so I already mentioned two of them, public speaking. I don't yeah. care what you're doing. If you're able to speak well publicly, that's going to seriously help you. Design mm -hmm. is the other one I already mentioned, because even if you're not going to be the designer on your team or the animator or whatever, you're still going to have to present your ideas to whoever you're pitching them to. So to yeah. be able to put together a, a presentation that looks that looks uh, professional yeah. is super important. Um, another thing is just storytelling and writing. To be able to tell a compelling story, to know the hero's journey, the arc of a story, to build something up and then have the payoff and leave them at the crescendo, and mm -hmm. just really the art of just storytelling. I mean, that's that's so key. Um, having yeah. good grammar and and everything else obviously goes along with that. I'd also say negotiation. So, you know, regardless of what you're doing in life, you're going to at some point going to need to ask for a raise, need to raise money, going to need to sell your company, whatever it is, there's a million ways that you'll need to negotiate. And and then finally, I would say creativity is the is the other one. And just being in general an idea machine. And a lot of that comes from having domain knowledge in multiple areas. So you can yeah. sort of, as James Altucher says, like 
like have ideas and then have your ideas have sex with each other to create new, better ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I mean, there's there have been so many innovations that take place at the intersection of different ideas, like the the design of networks and and um, I think electrical networks were based off of ant colonies and ant travel because they kind of naturally optimize things. So if you bring biology and computer networking, they just kind of mesh into this awesome idea that brings out great innovation. Mm -hmm. um, but I totally agree with what you're saying. It sounds like you were just, you're getting at, like you, you need to be good at these soft skills. And these mm. soft skills are almost, they're hard. You just need to do them to get better. And, and I've, you know, I've personally struggled as more of a tech person and an introvert that, you know, I, I've, I've had to work on my speaking abilities and my public and my, um, storytelling. So, you know, I totally agree. Well, uh, I've noticed like saying. just through doing this podcast that your public speaking has gotten so much better just from like the first episodes till now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, mine has too. Um, so I think that's also a good learning where, Oh, okay. So there's another part of this paradigm that I want to talk about, which is what I call mind businesses, which you can kind of do to the side of product or service businesses. Uh -huh. And the way I think of a mind business is like, imagine you have like a bunch of like a bunch of vinyl records and you're like flipping through them to find one that is right for, for that moment in that uh -huh. situation. But imagine like each of them is a different mind. <laughs> like that's really what it is when you're choosing a book to read or a podcast to listen yeah. to or a comedian to watch. Basically you're stepping inside that person's brain and looking at the world through their eyes and ears. Mm -hmm. And I think now like the reason I consider this a different business category is because knowledge itself is its own realm where people, people want to people want the curated version of what they need to know in any given area. And by reading someone's book, listening to their podcast, watching their stand-up set, whatever it is, you can then take like basically the highlights of all the work that they've put into and gain from all of those learnings. So if you're someone that's considering something like this, like let's say you have, I mean, you know, Justin and I had an interest in the future and we found ourselves always talking about the future and the latest technological changes before we even started this podcast. So we thought, well, hey, we're already having these conversations anyways. Why not record them and put it out there? Yeah. And not only will it help us build a little bit of an audience for ourselves and, and help hopefully, you know, uh, give a greater level of understanding, um, but it will also be a way for us to con continuously hone our own skills, whether it's public right. speaking or predicting the future or analyzing data or whatever it may yeah. be. Yeah. And, and to kind of talk about one more thing that I think is super important, um, the art of, so meta learning, learning how to learn is one mm. of those other skills that I think is totally necessary if you're going to thrive in the, you know, this quickly changing environment. So if you can learn how to adapt to new things quickly, then you're going to be in a much better position that can't learn as quickly and is maybe a little bit more static and rigid in in the way they think about things. So you yeah. you know it's it's good to I, I've even noticed uh, myself um, I, like I have to catch myself doing things like I think I'm good at you know 
adapting to change in some cases. But then as I was uh, working on some sort of programming the other day, and then I saw another programming language that would probably be better to solve this problem. I was like, now I'll never need this programming language. Even though it's mm. like the be- one of the better programming languages um, out there, I just I was resistant to these these different um, types of technologies for programming. And, and you have to realize that these, at least with me, and I think it's probably true for other people, is these this sort of rigidity and thinking creeps up and you don't even notice it creeping up. Mm-hmm. So you have to like actively almost try to do something and disrupt yourself sometimes. And yeah. that kind of goes back to your most basic idea of what you were saying in the beginning is treat yourself as you're like, you're always in beta mode. You should yeah. always try to treat yourself as a startup. Yeah. And I think as far as hacking the learning process, like when you do decide to expand your horizons and learn something mm-hmm. new, I mean, what I found to work really well with myself is like, for instance, anytime I'm prepping for an episode of Hence the Future, I'll choose a couple of audiobooks. I'll just power through them, possibly with like reading them as well, depending on like mm-hmm. what my situation is. And then the day before the episode, like I'll, I'll have this whole list of notes of just free form notes of everything I've thought about throughout that mm-hmm. week. And then I'll like create an outline and I'll just look at that outline right before I go to bed the night before the podcast. So while I'm dreaming, I basically uh-huh. have these thoughts like running around in my head. And then in the morning, yeah. I'll review the notes again and then I'll meditate for you know 12 minutes using the waking up app from Sam mm-hmm. Harris. And then I felt like that equation has, has had really good results just with my own ability to absorb information. Mm-hmm. But everyone's different so if if something works better for you it's important that you are just aware of that and some other aspects that definitely really affect your mood and your intellectual capacity are obviously diet and exercise you know scott adams talks a lot about how food is mood you know the food you eat really does change the mood that you have you know if you eat you know jim gaffigan has the funny thing about hot pockets about how terrible he feels after he eats hot pockets despite them being <laughs> delicious and that's definitely true i found with myself that if i just eat veggies or just meat i'm way more uh, cognitively capable than if i've had like you know a dense uh, bowl of oatmeal even though i used to yeah. i used to eat oatmeal every morning and i've realized that if i just have like some lean meat and and like sauteed spinach oh, yeah. in the morning i'm so much better off yeah we i i like i like that because uh we've we've talked about that before too um the whole yeah. like big big carby breakfast because that's i never eat breakfast anymore like i i used to especially like during high school i would always eat breakfast and then i would always get tired i mean part of that is you know high school starts way too early i think um, yeah but yeah, I just I think it's really good to think of your whole body as part of the startup, yeah. you know, part part of your your growth. And to touch a little bit more on the food, like you literally become what you eat. So you should, mm-hmm. if you're thinking of, if you only care about like your mind and your brain's performance, then you should also be caring about how your the body and the vehicle that carries your brain, right? So that. Yeah that just makes things easier for, I mean, it just makes your life easier. If you can, if you can think more clearly and, and kind of find the, th- the thing in the diet that works for you. And that's, that's the other thing too, 
is it's not necessarily the same for everybody. So you, you have to iterate on yourself and get the yeah. feedback. Like Scott Adams says that you should basically just write down how you feel after different meals and then just uh-huh. look at the data afterwards and see after which meals did you feel good versus bad. And, you know, that's a simple way of thinking about it, but it's, yeah, you know, it's effective. So, okay, just quickly, I'm going to throw out a startup idea that I've had, but if anybody else wants it, go for it because I want it. Um, <laughs> or if anyone else wants to start it, please do. Um, so one of the things just based on what we've been talking about and treating yourself as a startup and making sure that you have constant feedback is tracking data about yourself, right? Yes, the so, measured life. Yeah, so one of the, I just ordered an Aura Ring a couple weeks ago. Apparently their turnover time to like ship it is nine to 12 weeks, so that was a little hmm. unexpected. Um, but anyways, what I was thinking is you could take all of these different data sources from yourself. So let's say you're collecting Aura Ring data for your heart rate and your heart rate variability, um, and also like your sleep quality, but let's say you're also tracking the meals that you eat and like the whole like macro and micronutrient breakdown throughout your day. But you also have, let's say you have a survey that automatically sends to yourself or gives you a push notification that you do at like different parts of the day. So like right when you wake up, you take a little survey about how you feel. Right when you go to bed, you take a little survey about how you um treat you know how how you felt during the day like what was your mood throughout the day and how would you rate the day but if you like bring all of these different sources together oh and your genome from like 23 and me like all of these different things it's almost like a you could treat yourself as it's almost an analytics platform for yourself yeah well i feel like this is kind of the direction that apple health app is trying to go right Uh because like if you have the apple watch uh, you know, you can't do everything that you describe. Like you can't, you know, there's no option to enter genome. And I don't think they have like a survey system yeah. or anything like that, but they definitely want to be there. Um, mm-hmm. I think the key in how that area develops is just privacy, which is why I think Apple's probably the best position because they've really positioned themselves about, you know, what happens on your iPhone stays yeah. in your iPhone. Um, yeah. I think we should save that this discussion because there's a lot I want to talk about there, but we should save this for the future of fitness, which is an okay. upcoming episode with a good friend and fitness expert, Ross Strom. Okay. So we'll get into that. But I'd like to just touch on one more question as far as the future of startups is concerned and then get into the future scenarios. So the last question I'll, I'll address is just, how should you think about funding a startup? Mm-hmm. So I... Obviously, there's there's a couple ways that you can fund it. I'll I'll talk about them briefly, and then I'll talk about my personal preference. Um, so there's obviously the whole VC backed startup mm-hmm. where you go and pitch your idea and your team to different venture capitalists or maybe angel investors. Um, so you can you can get a lot of funding that way, and it's a good way to grow quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also the another way to do it, which you know, I don't recommend this at all, is to take out a loan and start a business, mm-hmm. right? So there's a there's a huge risk assessment that you need to do there. Or use like credit card debt is another way yeah, of debt financing. I mean, some some people have had success in there, but you 
you know, you, you hear about those successes, really but you don't risky. hear about, yeah, you don't hear about the vast number of failures and like the lives ruined from taking out a big debt or a big loan. Because let's say you, your business doesn't succeed. You're still liable for yeah. the money. Well, so. I, I, apparently I think debt financing makes sense if your business has capital that you can put up against the debt. So like if you're starting some new type of machine, like a new type of boiler maker company, then mm-hmm. you have some real assets that if the business goes south, at least you can sell your boiler makers and whatever machinery you, you've used yeah. to buy. But if you're starting some, like a machine learning company or, or like a, a marketing agency or, or anything that is just like really all about abstract domain your knowledge, knowledge. Yeah, yeah. then it's a, it's a bad idea, I agree, to finance via debt. Yeah, and I mean, the, so there's there's one last thing that I particularly like thinking about and that's a bootstrap startup so if mm-hmm. you if let's say you're you're a generalist enough to be able to do several different things and build something right that's kind of that's the big thing is being able to build something yourself or with a small team mm-hmm. um, that makes money from the get-go yeah so let's say let's say the first step you have it's not necessarily your grand vision but your first step is to make a product that sells and can bring in revenue to your business. The next idea, the next step from there is to iterate and, and scale, but only based on the cash flow that you're generating yourself. Yeah. So, so you can start from a smaller point. And I think this is, this is something that um, the masses should think about a little bit more because not everybody has access to VCs and angel capital. Well, not everyone has access to bootstrapping their startup also. Like, you know, like it worked well for someone like Elon Musk who already had a big payout from PayPal um, to achieve his vision of Tesla. But then again, that was a pretty grand vision. If your vision is just to start like a marketing agency or a food truck, well, a food truck actually has more capital investment. That's Yeah, that's probably Um, true. So like you do have to have money if you're going to start something like a food truck company it's not like anyone can just bootstrap that but if yeah. you're starting something that's like a service-based company like a marketing a marketing agency or some sort of other consultancy or whatever or like you know like the idea we had earlier of like if you're a, a qa tester for different yeah. apps um, there are lots of, or the you know the elder care like helping elderly people all of those would be really easy to bootstrap I think, and that's my, a vast majority of businesses too, though. Yeah. That's, yeah. That, anyway, sorry. Go ahead. But if you're if you have a grand vision, like you're trying to build a new internet, or you're trying to solve the healthcare right. crisis, or you're right. trying to save the planet via electric cars and solar panels, if your mm-hmm. idea is something like that, then it definitely makes sense to think about institutional investors. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing that that really stuck out to me after, especially. Um, hearing the whole Theranos story of yeah. that startup is that by getting big investor money, it makes you really good at spending money. It doesn't make you really good at making a profit by and large. Yeah. So, and a lot of times the incentives are are misaligned. So, because the investors yeah. eventually want their money back, right? So, in, instead of maybe doing a having a vision that is 20 years long you're you need to compress that into 
four to seven years so the investors right. can get a return on their investment. So, yeah, and there's, you know, there's a lot of things to consider. And there are some other options that haven't been discussed mm -hmm. yet. So there's also crowdfunding. Yeah. And you can do traditional crowdfunding via a Kickstarter campaign. So this is a great idea if you have a new idea for a product that, you know, maybe it costs $100,000, $200,000 to build, but which is, you know, more than you can bootstrap, but not so much that you would have to get an institutional investor. That's the perfect kind of startup to do crowdfunding. And with Kickstarter and Indiegogo, you don't give up any uh, like equity or anything. You're just getting people who also believe in the idea and in exchange, you'll give them one of the first versions of the product. Typically, mm -hmm. another way that's the newest version is equity crowdfunding. And my sister yeah. works at an equity crowdfunding company called Start Engine. And mm -hmm. that's very cool because it's sort of like the investor model, except it's not like you just have a few big investors that you're going to who oftentimes have a lot of influence in how you, you run your company. Instead, you're going directly to the masses and you're democratizing your company so that everyone owns, let's say, like, you know, a tenth of a percent of your company. And that can be a great way to build just a groundswell of support for your company because people are really invested. Mm -hmm. And so I think those are those are all good options. And I yeah. guess another one would be like sort of a light version of the investor is if you go to like friends and family and just yeah. like the people immediately around you, if you don't need that much, the tricky thing there is that it could destroy those relationships if it doesn't yeah. turn out well. So I wouldn't yeah. necessarily recommend that. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of risk when it comes to, um, especially when you're taking a lot of money, like the, the higher, the, the money that you're taking from people, the more risk there is. Mm -hmm. And if you're taking a lot of money from people you care about and the relationships you want to keep like that, you know, there's there's kind of a, a tightrope to walk there. So yeah. so people just I, I would just urge people to be a little careful about how how hasty how like how much they go into this like how much how fast they they approach this because if you maybe there's another way to the the risk that you're taking maybe you can do something that mitigates the risk. Right. Well, this is the reason why we recommend starting with an MVP, a minimum viable mm -hmm. product. Because you don't need to raise any money to just hire someone on Upwork to design the screens of your app, test it in Envision. Yeah. I mean, that's like, you know, maybe $1,000 for the whole kit and caboodle to test that. Mm -hmm. So there are ways to do this where you don't have to go into a debt right away. The key is to focus on learning and viewing yourself and your startup as always in beta mode and always a focus on learning and systems yeah. as opposed to goals. So. Yeah. I think now would be a good point to take a quick break and then get into the worst case, best case, and most likely future scenarios. All right, let's get into the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. So Justin, what do you believe is the worst case scenario for the future of startups? Yeah, so... What I what I have for the worst case scenario is something we didn't talk about much, um, but I, I think um, it's about as bad as it could get. So, with startups in particular, the the environment in which 
the the startups are you know the, the where these these new businesses are started so the country the the policies everything around um, the government that you're you know in the government in the country that you're trying to start this this business in matters but if there's a lot of corruption and monopolies and collusion and money in politics you know all of these things can make businesses harder to start mm -hmm. and especially going forward if if people need to scrape by you know like they can't take any risk because they need the money in you know from their job rather than um, starting a business they need to pay bills right so I think I think the worst case is there isn't something like the UBI which we've talked about several times and um, there there are a lot of different implementations of that and uh, um, anyways I, I just think if if there's all of this this inequality and corruption and all these monopolies that that increase the barrier to entry mm -hmm. for businesses that's the worst case like the the higher the higher the barrier for for small businesses and small individual proprietors, the worse the situation becomes. Yeah. Because I think I think the the whole economy is kind of based on this this idea of innovation and and filling needs for people. And if there's not a free market, then there's nothing really. Um, yeah. So yeah. I had some similar thoughts where. You know, obviously the worst case is a situation where humans are continuously competing against machines for their jobs and uh -huh. there's no support given. Therefore, humans are left to a state of basically squalor and starvation and struggling mm -hmm. to get by um, as compared to, to, you know, the people who control the machines. Mm -hmm. But I don't actually think this is that likely. I don't think this is likely enough to warrant my worst case scenario because mm -hmm. I don't think we're going to let people starve. I think yeah. people will be able to get by, even if it's a totally messy and inefficient expanded welfare state. I think mm -hmm. that we're going to be okay. So my worst case scenario is a little bit different. So okay. my worst case scenario is the proliferation of bullshit jobs. And uh -huh. So, and this was something, I mean, we kind of talked about it last episode, but this is something that was proposed as part of the Green New Deal, where a guaranteed job to every American, and I, the reason why that's my worst case is because I could see that actually going into place, because it sounds like a good political idea, mm -hmm. but the reality of that would be a situation where not only are people providing basically no value to the economy and to society, but they're also wasting all their precious time on this planet performing tasks that are totally needless. Um, you know, it's sort of like in the Soviet Union, how you'd have three butchers to serve one piece of meat. It, it would be a situation where there's just people just doing, you know, like hiring endless social media people um, mm -hmm. because there's always more you could be doing on social media versus yeah. like doing things that are efficient with the minimum number of people and then letting people do whatever it is they wanted to do before they were just focused on earning a living. Mm -hmm. And I think also there's a couple other trends. So the polarization of the job market is another trend I see in the worst case. And okay. what this means is basically a disappearance of the middle class. So if you think about how 
labor is really cheap right now. I mean, you can go on Upwork and get some some pretty high-end tasks for, for not very much money. So I could see a situation where because labor is so cheap, there are still a lot of jobs for humans to do, basically like filling the gaps in between what machines are doing, but they're being measured on the same metrics that machines are. We saw this in Amazon warehouses where like people are literally dying and then they, they can't even get a five minute break. Basically, like uh, there's that yeah. whole Daily Show or the New York Times podcast about that. Uh-huh. Um, and there's sort of a race to the bottom as a result of globalization. So people are barely scraping by because they're competing not only against machines, but also against the global workforce. And on the lower side of the polarity, there's just a race to the bottom for for efficiency and costs. Now, of course, on the upper side of the polarity, people who own the machines and have equity in the, the technology companies and whatnot, those people will be well off no matter what scenario we're looking at, you know, short of mass extinction, asteroid, nuclear yeah. war, something like that. So that's, that's what I have for my worst case scenario. Proliferation of bullshit jobs, polarization of the, glo- of the job market, and a race to the bottom uh, for costs via globalization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with all of that. All right, so what, what do you think for the best case? Best case scenario. Yeah, so my best case is it actually begins with the freedom dividend that Andrew Yang proposed, which is universal basic income, but because a lot of people have bad feelings towards universal basic income. He's renamed it the freedom dividend, which I think well, is... We should start calling it... Yeah, here. yeah. Call we're no longer going to call it UBI. We're going to call it the freedom dividend. Um, but basically, if you think about... And you, you kind of touched on this already. But if you think about what happens right now, people are unwilling to take entrepreneurial risks because there's no safety net if it goes south. There's no basic level of income, healthcare, security that people can expect to have if they take a risk and start a startup and it fails. Yeah. So my best case scenario is we put in that safety net and we make it so it cannot be gamed. The current welfare system is easy to game and it actually incentivizes people who need to continually show how helpless they are, how debilitating yeah. their depression or their injury or their arthritis is in yeah. order to get the handout. They have to show that they're continuously applying for jobs and not succeeding in order to get the handout. It's the most perverse, backward system. So if we replace this with something where everyone gets a certain amount, it's been shown that that will lead to greater acceptance because everyone's benefiting. You're not going to have some people like older voters say, "Hey, I never got these handouts specific to." you know, education or healthcare, I paid my way. Why should these people get a handout? So if you instead yeah. make it so everyone gets that handout, then I think there'll be much more support. And it's yeah. also shown through the, da- through the data that if you give people income, it makes them more entrepreneurial. It, it allows yeah. them to pursue whatever their passions actually are. And this is particularly true in countries, or I forgot which country in Africa, um, but there, there have been some UBI or you know freedom dividend studies about you know how how 
empowers women to take risks and do you know do things that yeah. that they wouldn't necessarily do because you know they're they're you know there's just there's more there's less risk involved when you have a little bit of financial freedom yeah and they say that the biggest impact is that it gives people choices so yeah. when people can count on x amount of dollars coming in each month they have choices in how to spend that they did one study with the these 13 homeless people on the streets of London who were just mm -hmm. the biggest stigma to society where they were, I mean, they estimated that the costs from the civil services or social services, you know, all of the damage that they caused and rabble rousing and helping them out and, you know, mm -hmm. all, the costs far exceeded what they would have had to pay with the, the Freedom Dividend or UBI. And then once they did this experiment where they actually gave them like $3,000 a month or, or whatever it was, they found that they were super frugal with how they spent it. Like mm -hmm. they had only spent like $500 in the first year out of like the money they had gotten. And they ended up having a much better situation. I think seven of the 13 were no longer homeless after a year after the study. And I mean, this is just one study. There are so yeah. many studies about this the book i would recommend is utopia for realists by rutger bregman who just had a okay. pretty incredible takedown of tucker carlson i don't know if you saw that video no i um, didn't oh, dude you gotta oh, see that is he the irish guy he's he's um he's dutch dutch okay yeah. I th actually yes i did i did see clips of that i didn't see the yeah. whole interview though all yeah. i remember is hearing tucker carlson go completely nuts at the end and like you know all this profanity well, it's, like it was so great because yeah. Rutger Bregman, this Dutch historian, just calmly explains exactly what motivates Tucker Carlson, that he's a millionaire funded by billionaires. And the only thing that is really matters is taxes. Everything else is kind of bullshit. And, mm -hmm. you know, as a millionaire owned by billionaires, he's his whole role is to basically scapegoat immigrants and not talk about taxing yeah. the rich or getting rid of tax loopholes or any of the stuff that will actually create change and instead just sort of divert them to you know racist underpinnings and it's but like the way he does it so calmly and using facts and data is the most applaudable performance yeah. that i've seen in a long time but you go whole, watch that whole thing yeah but anyways just to bring it home his whole thesis around giving people enough choices so that they can pursue whatever they're most passionate about in life, I think that would spark an unprecedented level of innovation and prosperity in this country. So, and I think it's something that is actually quite, quite plausible. If we make a few key changes, I think we can get there. So that's my best case scenario. I'm hopeful that the most likely is not far off from that. Yeah, and, and to kind of talk about one more study that I, I found interesting is the the rat study with uh, heroin. I forgot exactly what the study was called, but basically the idea was if if these rats were put in a cage and there was water laced with heroin and water, just regular water, they'll, they'll take the heroin water always mm -hmm. until they die, basically. So then everyone has all this, all of these things all these uh, connotations about drugs because drugs are bad and people will do drugs no matter what. Um, but the then there was a follow-up study 
and they gave these the rat rats paradise. Uh, yeah, rat paradise where they're they're just hanging out in this awesome place with other rats and you know, they're doing all the their rat things. Yeah. Um like they a... had access they had access to this heroin water, but they never used it because right. the environment that they were in made them happy and they didn't do all of these you know, they didn't do drugs to kind of use as, as an escape route. So I think these these two ideas kind of go hand in hand. If you give if you give people a better environment in which to live, then they they'll just they'll do the things that make them happy, right? Yeah, they, if they people aren't always about... worried about where their next meal is going to come from, they can actually plan for the future and how to improve their own life. Yeah. It's like Oh, how do you solve poverty? How about giving pe- poor people money? <laughs> like, have we tried that? No, we do all of these workaround ways so we don't have to give them money. It's like uh, totally absurd. Yeah. And so I guess for, for my best case, it, it's kind of echoes a lot of what you were saying. So um, making sure we have policies in place that give people more individual freedom for risk-taking. So... Uh, the the thing we didn't talk about was healthcare. So I think I think healthcare probably needs to come before the freedom dividend or UBI, because it's there are a lot of costs associated I, I with it, and it's a much that, easier. I, I used to think that, but after reading Utopia for Realists, I changed my views because I mm-hmm. think if you give people a basic level of income, they could use some of that on healthcare, some of it on education some of it on starting a business. I think the more that you allow people to decide what's the best use of funds in their own life, rather than purporting to know what the best use of funds that someone needs, I think you're going to have better results. So, yeah. So I guess what I, the, the point of me saying, I think healthcare is first because the, the costs to society for healthcare are insane. So if we can mm-hmm. decrease the cost of healthcare, like we're, we're something like, two to five, depending on which type of healthcare, it's like two to five times more expensive than the next, the next most expensive country in the world. Yeah. I think Canada. Well, is a lot like of that's next. like waste. Yeah. There's so much waste. So if, if, and... if we get rid of that waste, then, then even the freedom dividend can be higher or, yeah. you know, we can have a, we can have a higher uh, monthly um, income just from yeah. some sort I mean, of my, my big concern there is just like the government managing money because it's like they've already have such a big buzz budget that they mismanage that like I would be concerned about giving them more power and how to spend and, and impact society. That's why like I would I think if we really just focused on giving money directly to the people with no bureaucracy. So there's no need to have any committees like deciding on anything. Everyone mm-hmm. just gets a certain amount per month. And I think that would have much better results, like not only for education and startups, but also for um, healthcare and everything, crime and everything else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I see what you're saying. It, it makes sense. Um, but I agree. Healthcare the, is super important just as, a, as an overall topic. Yeah, making sure people aren't worried about, you know, having to pay a $100,000 bill if they you know, get some sort of disease. Like that's, that's mm-hmm. stupid. That, that shouldn't be something people need to worry about. And that, that decreases risk taking if there are these, these crazy downsides to um, taking financial risk. Right. Um, but anyways, one of the other best cases is there is just this thriving economy for new businesses to create supporting businesses that 
get that make it easier to disrupt big industries. So we can we can start approaching all of these best case scenarios that we've talked about because a lot of the best case scenarios that we've talked about throughout the entire podcast is resting on the foundation of innovative companies, right? It's not always resting on the foundation of policy. Like it, a lot of it is companies that can disrupt in a um, in a positive way. So that that's just the the last that's that was one of the last things. Um, and then just making sure that people can handle this this remote economy better without uh, being lonely by you know using all these co-working spaces and everyone taking advantage of these these awesome opportunities and being able to do uh, what they want to do even if it's working at a startup and not starting your own startup and just do just doing exactly what you want to do is mm-hmm. basically the the best case and um, anyways all right well let's get into now the most likely scenario most likely scenario So for my most likely, it was somewhere in the middle. I think some countries will be better than others. Um, For example, let's say you want to start a blockchain startup, Estonia, you know, some, I think it's a East European country is basically basing their entire country on blockchain technology. So like healthcare records, anything you want to do to, um, you know, for the, basically anytime you would interact with the government, they're solving it through blockchain. So if you want to start a blockchain company, go to Estonia. But if um, I think the other downside is we have countries that are more closed and more corrupt. So like starting a business in Brazil or Venezuela is probably not a good idea. Um, And I think there's just going to be, there's going to be countries throughout the world that, that differ in how they approach the the whole startup uh, world. So it's it's yeah. just I think we'll just see some of both. Yeah, in my most likely scenario, it really comes down to this one quote. So this quote is that if a revolution is to be had, it's better to drive the revolution than have the than be revolted <laughs> against. I forget the exact uh-huh. verbiage of the quote, but it's basically this the notion that look, there are major global forces that are ha- that are happening right yeah. now and you can't really fight against them and this automation wave is going to create much fewer jobs than it disrupts i think anyone who doesn't argue that just needs to research more into the, into this area and why it's very different now than the industrial revolution or any other revolution before and once you consider that, I think that there's not going to be a major change until we are on the brink of a revolution. Mm-hmm. So that's my most likely. So my most likely scenario is that we're not going to see something like the freedom dividend until people are up in arms. Maybe not literally up in arms, but until there's some sort of Occupy Wall Street version for... Yeah you know, nowadays, that's probably a lot worse than the Occupy Wall Street crisis. But, you know, I'm hopeful that in the best case scenario that, you know, we will implement these changes maybe in 2020, maybe in 2024, maybe in 2028. 
But mm-hmm. I think to be more realistic about it, I think it's most likely that we don't actually have major changes until people, especially people in the red states and in the, the key swing states in any presidential election, once they realize that it's not Mexicans that are taking their jobs, it's robots and algorithms and software <laughs> companies. <laughs> once they realize that, then the shift is going to occur. Until uh-huh. that happens, like for as long as fake news misinformation uh, hides that reality, I mm. don't think we're going to see major change. Yeah, and and if there are other countries that that are dealing with change better, maybe it's time to, you know, may, may, if you want to start a business, the U.S. isn't necessarily the best place anymore, right? So you could you could go to another country. Um, yeah, different yeah. countries different countries will deal with these problems in different ways. So. I'll just keep that into account, I guess, or take that into account. And, I but I don't, I don't know how much it, like, I don't know how much it necessarily matters in the country that you're in, just because you can start anything globally. But I do think it matters if you have a basis from which to take risks. Like, if you have your basic needs covered, I think in whatever yeah. country you're in, I mean, obviously there'll be different attitudes, like, failure is way less acceptable in China than it is in the US or Australia or but America does still have this this um, you know cowboy mentality of yeah. just being willing to take risks and do moonshot goals uh-huh. so I, yeah. I don't want to discount America as far as our entrepreneurial spirit I think the main problem with America is that people just don't have the financial, security to take entrepreneurial risks and right. i think if we give people that security then we're going to see unbridled innovation for the next several decades that will allow us to take on the biggest challenges of our time including yeah. climate change and ai and uh, mm-hmm. joblessness and everything in between yeah i mean i do think the u.s is going to be the hub for the the vast um disruptive companies I was just kind of saying if if you're starting a small business, like if you just want to do a little small online thing, like you don't necessarily need to be in the U.S. You yeah, can be you somewhere can be anywhere. That, yeah. And you can hire someone on Upwork in Malaysia and have a design house out of Sweden. And it's a very global world, very flat world, as people say. Not actually <laughs> yep, flat. The world is flat. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. We've had a nice long discussion here. This has been the future We're talk of startups. About what has happened? And what is currently happening? Next week. And what will inevitably happen? The past, the present, and the